This is The Immigrant View, a podcast for immigrants by immigrants. Welcome to the show. The Immigrant View is brought to you by ImmigrantNetworks.com. Hello, everyone. It's a great pleasure being here with you once again. Welcome to The Immigrant View with Ayo Owaduni. Good I don't want to say good after. I, why do I always make that mistake? And hello to you, uh, whether it is middle of the night, morning, afternoon, evening that you're listening to this. So today we have a very special guest joining us. Um, we're going to be reviewing his book together. Uh, I, I, I really loved this book. I think from the first chapter, there are so much, uh, so many things that you can pull from it, so many learnings that could be pulled from this. And I thought it was quite important for us to be able to review the book. The book is called Driven to Succeed. It is written by Deputy Mayor of the Town of Shelburne and Counselor for the County of Dufferin. His name is Steve D. Anderson. Uh, Steve, I don't know if I should use the word is or was, uh, so correct me on this one. Steve was a senior lawyer with the Toronto Transit Commission. Am I correct on that? Is. Is. Wow. So you still are. I did not know that. I honestly thought when you became a deputy mayor, you left that job. Yeah, quite a few people feel or think the same thing. But yeah, I'm wearing multiple hats. I think it's fair to say. That is all right. So I got, I'm going to have a question around that later on. Uh, as a practicing lawyer, has received a number of awards for his distinguished service. He has extensive board experience, serving as a former uh, pres- vice president of the Ontario College of Kinesiology. I hope I said that properly, board member with prologue to the performing arts, citizen appointment for Community Care Access Center Brampton, a citizen appointment for the City of Brampton Task Force. Um, He was uh, named uh, by the Toronto Star as one of the top 50 Jamaicans in the GTA in 2013. Uh, He's a proud father of two children, a strong believer in family. But I would say the most important of all of this, from what I see from the book, he is from the Jane and Finch community, and he has gone from that to where he is today. So please join me to welcome, I don't know if I'm supposed to say his deputy worship, or his worship, or the second in worship. Uh, Steve is fine, man. Steve is fine. Steve is fine. (laughs) (laughs) It's a pleasure having you. How are you doing? Man, it's great to be on your program. I, I, as I mentioned uh, before we, we jumped on, I'm really looking forward to this interview. Uh, I had watched uh, your, your program, uh, great interviews, great subject matter. And so uh, I was really excited about uh, being here today. Thank you. Thank you so much. The, the book, once again, is titled Driven to Succeed. You can, you can grab this on Amazon, uh, written by Steve Anderson. And we're just going to be diving in uh, as best as possible. We only have uh, a limited time to go through, but there's so much content that you can pull from the book. So I want to get started. Chapter one, you share a very interesting story about your childhood. Uh, you talked about how, um, you know, you you have immigrant parents, you know, the rest of the family was from Jamaica. They could all reminisce and think about Jamaica and life back home, but you couldn't resonate with that because you were born and raised here and you always felt as a child that you were you were with them, but you were not really with them. You even shared some story about you trying patwa out <laughs> at some point. So can you walk us through that aspect of your life? And then also for immigrant parents, how can they help their children, you know, doing through that phase? My son is six years old now. I just realized if anybody asked me where I'm from, I would say Nigeria. If anybody asks him where he's from, he's going to say he's from Kitchener, you know, and I'm still trying to wrap my mind around that. And he has a two-year-old sister. So how can immigrant parents help their children through that process so they don't have to go through what you went through during that early childhood experience? Yeah, you know, to be honest with you, I don't know if it it could be avoided. Um, And and so, um, yes, you know, what what you mentioned in chapter one and what I was going through uh, being the only Canadian in the Jamaican-born family, uh, I believe the title uh, is the title of the chapter. Um, and it's very similar to those who come to Canada from wherever part of the world that they come from, which mm-hmm. is they're here, um, you know, they're starting to get settled in, but there's a difference. 
right? Um, you know, there's the Canadian values and 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 the culture, and, and and you're trying your best to assimilate, but you still feel like an outsider, even though you're here with boots on the ground, right? You've started to assimilate, but um, you know, you you sense that things are clearly different, mm-hmm. uh, and that's the way I felt it in my family. So I, I think it's unavoidable to feel that way. Um, and it's nothing wrong with feeling that way, I would say. It's it's how you decide to adapt to the situation uh, is the important thing. And for me, I was doing, uh, I was going above and beyond trying to assimilate, trying to be like everybody else, right? And maybe immigrants who are coming to the country are tr- bending over backwards to find out, how could I be Canadian? I want to be Canadian so badly. Uh, and then you lose your uh, sense of identity and your authenticity to yourself because you're trying to be like everybody else. And so whether it is somebody who is trying to fit into a group of friends or into a workplace, or into a new country, and in my situation, into a new family, is it's good to want to belong, but not at the expense of losing yourself. And that was really the message uh, to be taken away in that chapter is it's okay to be yourself and to be different and be okay with that. Mm-hmm. And quite interesting, much later on in the book, uh, you talked about your experience at TTC and always, always trying to adapt as well in that situation, uh, which, which is quite interesting. Uh, later on in chapter one, I believe you talked about divorce. Uh, you shared um, the story of your father and your mom. And there was a quote that you used that I thought was really powerful. The impact of divorce between a couple can reverberate for generations. And when I saw that, you, you, you know, when you got to get up and like, whoa, <laughs> he walked around the house a few times, like, I got to let that sink in. Can you t- talk to us more about that, 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 that sentence that you came up with? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, share more about that. The impact of divorce between a couple can reverberate for generations. Yeah, it, it, it can. And I think, um, and uh, for those who may not have experienced uh, their parents uh, separating. Um, I, I'll put it in this way. It's if we just look at it as just trauma in general. Um, and if trauma is not dealt with, not only are you struggling with it, but it could be passed on to your children and your children's children because it hasn't been properly resolved and you're carrying it, you're passing it in some form or way to either your children or your family or those who are around you. And so that's what I mean that it could reverberate. At the time that I was going through this, uh, as I said uh, in a recent talk, it's not like there was some form of intervention even after it happened, right? It wasn't like a psychologist came and said, hey, Steve, you know, how are you dealing with this Chester or Lenny or whoever? How are you doing? Let's let's, let's focus on some coping mechanisms. Mm -hmm. There was none of that. And so it, it was something that continued uh, for all of us, and even when I talk to my my brothers, my siblings uh, today, uh, we still talk about some of the impacts that situation had us. As, as much as we thought it wouldn't, and as much as we thought that we had buried it, um, it was certainly still there. So uh, it can reverberate if it if it's not dealt with in a proper manner. What What do you think parents can do in that? process to to help their children. I know uh, the parents are dealing with their feelings as well, and they're dealing with their issues. I remember growing up, um, my mom and dad separate when I was very young as well. And when it was time for school fees to be paid, my mom would send me to my dad. And I hated those moments because <laughs> it was like uh, I would be sent with my school invoice saying, uh, mommy's willing to pay 50%. Can you pay the other 50? And then I was like, the, oh, go tell her this and then go tell him this. And I would mm-hmm. hear all these things about both of them through that painful process that they were going through uh, themselves. How could parents help their kids while they're going through that process? Well, one major way is, is stop placing your children as the middle person, mm-hmm. uh, the go-between. Uh, if you want to go ask your father, uh, bring the invoice to your mom and, and let her decide whether she's going to pay it. And so as a young person in the situation, you're dealing with your own emotions. Of course, they're the adults, though, right? They're expected to be certainly more mature and, uh, and be able to navigate through this process more intelligently. The worst thing a parent could do is place their child in the middle of all of this. 
uh, and where you know the child's going to the father, and then he's saying, "Well, we'll get your mother to go and pay for this," or, "Or you know, your deadbeat dad, she, he should be covering it. I'm already covering all this." And now you're internalizing all that, right? Mm -hmm. And that is never helpful. So stop putting your children in the middle of this and deal with it as adults, uh, and try to create the best environment for your child as possible, um, friction free. And you know, and that's what I talk about in the in, in the book is. During the separation or following the separation, my mother never said anything negative about my dad. And I, and I say that there were times where I felt she may have been delusional. And if she decided to criticize, I would have joined the course, as I, as I say in the book, of, mm -hmm. of, of critique and criticism. But mm -hmm. she never did that, right? She never exposed us to that, uh, that negativity. And I think that helped, certainly for not making the situation worse. But again, answering your question, uh, one of the things that they could do is to try to have a respectful relationship, even though the relationship has had, ended, it doesn't mean the respect level has to end. And I think if you could come together and work respectfully, the children will see that they'll understand, look, relationships end. And, and, but you know what, we could still talk to each other and deal with each other that demonstrates respect. And I think lastly, I'll say is don't be afraid to sit down with your children and explain to them the situation, uh, what's going on. Uh, depending on their age, of course, uh, and, uh, and and allow them to uh, navigate along with you as you go through this journey. Did you at any point get to reconcile uh, with your dad? I, I the only we heard the ice cream story where you and your brother went out for ice cream, I think, or something like that with him much earlier on in the book. I was hoping that I would get something at the end, you know. Um, but that was the, the last chapter and I was looking for more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know what? Um, that's a great uh, observation. And I, I must say that you're the first person who's asked me, uh, for a follow-up on that. Um, people have picked on different, um, bits and pieces of the book to highlight for themselves, but this is what I really enjoy by way of the feedback is that there's something for everybody that's in there. So whether you're young, uh, older, in between, uh, there's something there, uh, there, 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 there was reconciliation, uh, if you want to call it that, um, many years, and I mean many, many years later. So after that incident that I described in the book, it was probably a good 30 years uh, or so afterwards mm. that uh, through a family friend, um, he had reached out to a family friend and said that he'd like to speak to me. Um, and that family friend, you know, planted the seed, but said, you know, Steve, no rush if you want. I understand if you don't or you, uh, or if you want to, but there's something to consider. Uh, and so it was at that point, I gave it some thought and then I actually met up with him uh, and we went for lunch and we had a conversation. And then it was just really sparingly that we had conversations after that over the years. But um, yeah, there was, there was that full reconciliation. I don't know if there could be full reconciliation after what uh, we had experienced as a family, mm -hmm. uh, but there was certainly a connection. I'll, I'll say that. You, you know, when, when I was growing up, I saw my, my father beating my mother multiple times in front of me. Mm. And, and we're talking 20-something years later when I got to visit Nigeria again, and I went to see him in his, um, in his town, and I had that sit-down with him. I went right to that question, you know, what happened? What was going on? I want to know. And I would say we had a very very powerful heart-to-heart -heart conversation where he was open and he shared his side. I had only always heard one side, uh, but then he shared his side. And I thought that was a, a very powerful experience. And like you said, I think the right word was, then there was a connection because now 20 years later, I could understand, you know, um, not understanding the beating, but understanding the mindset uh, that could, that could come during that time period. So I, I, th I think that's quite interesting. Thanks it's for sharing that with you. It's, it's interesting. You, you, you got that from, you know, you're, you're connecting with your dad. And, uh, for those who are listening, uh, I, I think the connection, if it's possible is important because it'll help to try to fill in some of the gaps in questions that you may have. And certainly have had over the years. Uh, I would say the distinction in my situation is I, I was, for me, I wanted, when, when we made the connection, I was thinking about, okay, let's, let's talk about today and moving forward. Mm. The first time when I met up with him, he went for lunch. He felt the, I guess he felt impressed to try to explain, or in my view, make excuses 
for mm. why the situation ended the way that it did. And, and and listen, if he had come out and said, look, Steve, relationships don't work. I tried. Uh, and for reasons that I don't really want to get into, it just didn't pan out. And that's why we separated. Mm. I think most people would be able to digest that, right? Mm. Um, but when you leave and you make no effort to connect with your children, uh, and then you want to now rationalize away or appear to make excuses for why that may have occurred. Uh, for me, I just wasn't having that. And, and he attempted to do that. And I remember telling him directly that uh, I wasn't here to discuss that. I was here to talk about today and moving forward. So these things are specific to each person and relationship. Uh, but I do think a connection is important. I, I was listening to one of, uh, one of the webinars that you had done with another group. And one of the key things that you said there was... Um, if you've gone through a situation like that, you need healing. <laughs> and I thought that was powerful that you shared that, that it was important for everyone to get that healing that was needed uh, for something like that. You talked about ESL, English as a second language. Oh, man. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's bring that up again. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And um, I was having a conversation uh, once with um, uh, some of the members of uh, the uh, should I say the board of trustees over here? And one of the studies that was done or what was mentioned was, hey, Aya, do you know what? We just realized that we have never done a study to see how effective our teaching has been for kids that English has been their second language in the Waterloo region. And this was just, this was like, this was last year or two years ago or something like that, that this came up. And now the board was saying, we want to start going in to learn more about this. So when I was reading your book and I saw that, that you were put in there, despite you knowing that you speak very well and you were confident, walk us through that process. How did it make you feel? But then also the intervention of um, Mr. Lin, your teacher. <laughs> Mr. Lin, uh, good old Mr. Lin. How did it make me feel? I felt embarrassed. First of all, it was a, a sense of shock. It was a shock to the system. Um, as to how this could be occurring as, as you described and as you know in reading that chapter, how could this happen to me? I, I'm reading well, I speak well, um, and it appeared to me that I must have fallen through some cracks. Um, you know, I, I vividly describe, um, you know, being in homeroom with the other students uh, before we get dispersed to our classes and that door would knock and, and Mr. Lin would come in and everybody's looking over their shoulder and whispering like, you know, where is he going? And at that time I was wishing I was invisible uh, because I knew he was coming right to my direction. Uh, and then as I was leaving, I could hear the murmuring and the chattering and the laughter and, and students asking the teacher, where is he going? And, you know, you know he'll join you later. Um, and it was something that I was hoping that I could just keep between myself and Mr. Lin. But as I say in the book, the cat was out of the bag when he came into the classroom. And so, uh, each and every time uh, the, the, the feeling of embarrassment occurred every time that morning he would knock on the door and come and get me. And as I described in the book, I felt like a, 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 a defective product on the display shelf, right? Uh, that something was wrong with me as to why I was being pulled away from the group and, and seemingly nobody else. And so uh, that took quite a bit of time to sort of wrap my head around, but then came Mr. Lin, right? Like, a guy that uh, didn't allow me to mope and and and, uh, and dwell in my circumstances, and he, I remember him saying to me, you know, all, all the time, "Look, Steve, you're here. If you want to change your circumstances, then you have to do something about it." Mm. Uh, and working together with him, I did do something about it, and I was able to transition out of ESL into advanced English. That's awesome. That's awesome. Moving from Mr. Lin, there was another teacher. Uh, at this mm. point, you've left. Uh, you went to a different school. Uh, I don't remember the name of the school. And there was a particular teacher that specifically said um, you should, uh, I don't remember the phrase, but basically alluded to you becoming a lawyer in the future. And if, from what I'm seeing from the book, those words were so powerful. They resonated with you for a long time. Can you, can you speak to us about that experience? Yeah, so that, that happened, you know, when I, ESL was when I was in Oakdale Junior High, um, uh, went to Westview Collegiate to got to some trouble there, suspended, and then my mom made the decision that I had to leave, and I, I went for a fresh start at CW Jeffries, also located in the Jane Finch community. I was taking a grade 11 law course, 
uh, at the time. And as I say in the book, I was all over the map with respect to what I wanted to become a real estate agent, bus driver, etc. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't really have a, a particular strong interest in law, even though I took the course, but I was doing well. And so the teacher over a period of time was clearly observing me and watching. And so after class one day, she said, Steve, you know, I want you to stay behind. I want to talk to you. And so I'm thinking, okay, you know, did I do something? Am I in trouble? Uh, and she said to me, Steve, look, you know, I've been paying attention in the way you're absorbing the material, the way you're performing. And if you stay focused, uh, I'm confident that you'd be a really good lawyer. And I talk about how uh, in the book that I, I laughed at first, but I say that she said it with such conviction that mm-hmm. before I left the classroom, I started to believe that it too was possible. And so I went from being scattered in my approach to being very focused in singular what I wanted to do. And so I just want to take this opportunity to really shout out educators and the, 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 the importance of good educators and the role that they play and encouraging and motivating students. And sometimes you might not be able to see the fruition of that seed being planted, but just know that you're doing the right thing. You know, I, I remember when I was in ninth and 10th grade, I'd just arrived from Nigeria then in the U.S., and was going through my period of um, finding myself uh, in the midst of changing a teenager and trying to just figure out life. And I do remember uh, three teachers, uh, Miss Eastwick, Miss Brady, Miss uh, Fudala, all saying things wrapped around that whole, not mention a career, but if you just continue in the path that you're going, you're going to be great someday, you know, those types of words. Until today, those words are still held inside of me, and there were seeds that were planted. And uh, yeah, big shout out to those educators. But in line with that, there are still some educators. Um, I've heard so many things said, and I've read so many of people being directed in a certain direction, or no, you shouldn't do that. You should play basketball, or oh, you're tall. And I think you alluded to this at one point as well. Like, oh yeah, you're six foot four. Uh, why don't you try out for basketball? Whereas nobody's talking about STEM or those types of things uh, for you. How do we get our teachers, who are the seed planners, to start speaking life into kids rather than just opinions or implicit bias or whatever it might be? that could end up planting the wrong seed in the hearts of people and lead to bitterness sometimes. Wow. Uh, what a, what a powerful question. Um, I, one would imagine that when the decision was made to go to teacher's college, that the whole objective was to be an inspiration and to plant seeds and to educate and to, um, build a better tomorrow with respect to um, the the children that they're educating, the students that they're educating. Um, And for for them not to, for for, for some, I'm not gonna say all, for Mm -hmm. some not to do that, it it begs the question why? Uh, Mm -hmm. Is it because um, they're burnt out? Uh, Is it because of uh, things that, you know, life changes that come into, the way that has changed their perspective and their mindset as to why they're now acting out in the way that they're acting out? Uh, or is it implicit biases that they come into the position with? Um, and, and so it, it could be a myriad of, of these different reasons. Um, you know, I, I guess one quick suggestion would be is, you know, for teachers to, you know, to continue to go through whether it's some, some form of ongoing training uh, and sensitivity um, you know, almost like a refresher, um, just to make sure that they're on the same path, uh, which is similar to the one that they started on. But it could be a, a, a number of different reasons as to why they get to this point. Uh, but the solution uh, may not be as easy as we would like to believe. Hmm. And uh, I was just thinking a recommendation. There's a book that I saw online, um, How Teachers Position Black Boys in Ontario's K-12 Schools. As an immigrant coming from Nigeria, I wasn't aware of anything like this before. Someone suggested the book to me. I read it and I was just blown away by, you know, um, some of the data and the information shared in that book. So to all immigrant parents, please, you got to get involved, have conversations with those teachers. When you can, please um, 
grab that, uh, grab a copy of that book and read it. You know, All just right. before you transition there, because it, it, this is a very important point, because um, it, it's it, the training is there. Uh, it's not that the training is not there, especially when it comes to anti-black racism and, and, and the way that immigrant uh, students are treated in our schools. I, I mean, even just last week, uh, I was seeing, or the week before, you know, a teacher coming to a school for Halloween with blackface or uh, immigrant children being taped to a desk. It's not like we're in 2021. The Toronto District School Board and all these other school boards provides all this training. They, they, they have these memos that come down to the teachers saying, this is not acceptable. Using the N-word in classes is not acceptable because it causes trauma. And yet still, there are teachers that are doing this. And so that's, it, it may not even be training. It may simply be some of these teachers have this underlining bias when it comes to these students that even the training cannot eradicate. Hmm. Uh, and so what we need to do is do our very best to make sure that the best and the brightest are getting into these positions. And we're doing our very best to make sure that those who have lost their way and have no interest in finding their way back need to be weeded out of the system. Mm. Thanks for that. Very, very, very powerful suggestion. I really appreciate that. Page 105 of your book, you say here, the only Black law student in the department, I was determined not to allow my caller to be a factor or distraction. Mm. In essence, I wanted to make sure that everyone was comfortable being around me. I never wanted the work environment to change just because I was around. I was certain if I caused the slightest alteration, my presence would, would have been resented by some. The goal was to be more like the group choosing not to reveal my authentic self. Sadly, I had sanitized my Black identity in exchange for acceptance. So it, how do you balance, you know, on one hand, you had mentioned that it yearned results, but on the other hand, you feel like you're losing a part of yourself. Yeah, yeah. Well, it gained results because I got the acceptance that I was looking for. But as I mentioned earlier, um, to what extent and to what sacrifice, uh, where you gain the acceptance of the group, but when you look in the mirror, you can't see a person that you recognize anymore. And is that really worth it at the end of the day? And I think that's a question that we all have to ask ourselves. But many racialized individuals find themselves in that situation, especially in corporate Canada, right? Uh, they're the only person of color in that department uh, or in that workplace. And, and so there's this desire to not want to stand out or to do anything that you believe would ruffle feathers. Mm -hmm. And not only that, there's also the enormous weight that somehow you have to be Superman or Superwoman, as I talk about in the book, to make sure that other Blacks or other racialized individuals have an opportunity to come in behind you. So there's a great amount of stress that um, other people do not have to go through and worry about. Some people just show up to work and do their job. Uh, many of us don't have that luxury to do that. Thanks for sharing that. I think that's, that's something a lot of Black people have to go through and members of the immigrant community. I read an article once where um, uh, a Muslim immigrant or immigrant that, that's from the Muslim uh, faith had shared that he had to basically lie to his colleagues that he was a recovering alcoholic. Um, he had to lie that way so that they didn't invite him to the bar with all of them. Uh, he, he preferred to say that than mm -hmm. to say, oh, I'm Muslim. Uh, so that's why I'm not coming to drink. And, and, and it really bothered me that really, that the story is as far as an extent as a recovering alcoholic, when you could easily just said, you know, my faith, uh, this is just something that we don't we don't do because of, of of my faith, and I and I just thought being your authentic self when you when you can't be your authentic self at the office, there's so much of you that the organization is losing. Uh, and despite that, many times organizations don't even realize that they're subconsciously creating a system and a place where you're accepted for not being your authentic self. But well, here's the thing, here's the thing, though, here's an important thing, though, is they may not necessarily recognize it because you are still productive. Mm. Right. I showed up to work as much as I was dealing with what I was dealing with and not really revealing. I talked about in the book, uh, it was almost like I was coming to work undercover. Right. Uh, in disguise. And I left my real self at home. 
but I was still very productive. Mm. I was still very, because I took my job seriously. And so what will happen is the workplace will find it difficult to maybe assess that because when they look at you and they look at me, we're still highly functional and performing very well. Mm. And so they, they make the assumption that everything's okay because you and I choose not to say anything about it. But we choose not to say anything about it because, again, as I mentioned in the book, we don't want to be seen as standouts and ruffling any feathers. I did a talk just to your point about uh, this gentleman preferring to be uh, characterized as an alcoholic, a recovering alcoholic, than just simply saying that he was Muslim. I did an event at, uh, at Enbridge, and a lady reached out to me afterwards on the, on the book here, Driven to Succeed. And she just thanked me for being open and vulnerable. And she said to me that when it came to her children in her workspace and even in her community, in public, she refused to speak Arabic in public to her children because she didn't want people to associate her with being in that part of the region or that part of the world and any stereotypes that came along with that. And mm -hmm. so here is something that is near and dear to herself, but yet still she withheld that because of fear of some sort of judgment. And that's exactly the example that you're talking about. This gentleman was fearful of the judgment. Mm -hmm. And that's why he decided to say something else rather than acknowledging what he's all about. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow. There, there's so much to pull from your book, Steve. Unfortunately, we don't have that much time, but I still have some questions for you. By the way, uh, the book is titled Driven to Succeed Once Again. You can grab this on Amazon, written by Steve Anderson, Deputy Mayor of the, the town of Shelburne. So um, we go through your story, you make it into law school, you come out, you start working at TTC, which is a phenomenal story on its own on how you were the first black person to be able to, uh, that, that, that was um, hired at uh, TTC. And then you start to talk about how you started to pull into politics or how politics pulled you in. And the initial thing was, uh, I believe it's called I don't know how to pronounce it, the, the Danzig shooting. I'm not sure if that's the proper way. Right. Mm -hmm. Can you walk us through that? Like, how did that inspire you to start moving into being active in the community? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I, at this point uh, in my career at the TTC, I was already using the TTC platform working for this iconic institution. Uh, and so that afforded me an opportunity to go back um, into um, these marginalized communities, including the Jane and Finch community, to really try to change the narrative as to what is possible and what good could come from these communities and to encourage them, whether it was law or something else, that it is possible. Um, then the shooting happened at a community barbecue in Scarborough. And I was actually at my desk and I was thinking, you know, I'm doing this work in schools, but clearly I need to do more, right? It's not enough what I'm doing. Um, is there an opportunity to grow, to leverage my platform, to maybe tackle this this, this gun violence issue. And so I'm at my desk and I, I research a couple of local politicians in the area, send them out both emails saying, look, I'm Steve Anderson, TTC, this is the work that I'm doing. I'd like to be part of the solution. Mm -hmm. They both respond to me uh, and invite me to come down to the office to talk. And then one in particular, Mario Sergio, um, the MPP at the time, Mario Sergio, invited me to a round table discussion at York Gate Mall in the Jane Finch community mm -hmm. where Dr. Eric Hoskins, I think was the Minister of Children and Youth. And he was going around to different communities, finding out or getting um, feedback from stakeholders as to how we could end the gun violence, et cetera. So I was there, gave my contributions. Uh, that The minister made an announcement about, you know, giving $20 million to help resolve this issue, et cetera, et cetera. And then I thought to myself, wow, like I'm on this platform doing what I'm doing already, but I got a good upfront uh, or a front row seat as to how the political process or the political platform could help a lot more individuals. Right, and so right. that introduction planted the seed at, you know, leading me to think that maybe one day that mm -hmm. I could get to that position and be able to help a lot more people. And, and then once you got involved in, in uh, serving, you eventually joined, um, when you moved to Shelburne, you joined the city's transition um, committee. Mm -hmm. And uh, what, what kind of exposure did that also give you? Yeah, so this was the, um, the transit, uh, transit committee. And the reason why I joined that, because, you know, having a transit background, I figured that, uh, you know, this would be something I could, you know, come in and hit the ground running and give some level of expertise and knowledge. Uh, at the time, the town of Shelburne did not have public transit. 
And so okay. this committee was working along with Gold Transit uh, to see whether or not they could extend Gold Transit services from Orangeville to Shelburne. I'm proud right. to say that the town of Shelburne does now have transit. And we're very proud of that. But this oh, committee, good. yeah, this committee uh, gave me exposure to the um, the some of the local officials that work for the town of Shelburne, uh, community members, because obviously the community was aware of this transit committee and the fact that I was on it. And so this was a great introduction, really, to the community and uh, allowing the community to see what value I could bring. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Page 131. Um, mm -hmm. So, Councillor Tom Egan and listeners, I'm jumping through the book at this point, uh, just pulling some highlights. In between the pages that I'm jumping through, there's so much information. Uh, I'm not going to give you the transition. So you're going to have to go read the book for yourself and figure out the transitions uh, yourself. So uh, page 131, you, you shared a story. Um, you're thinking about politics, but you're thinking sometime later in the future. Then you pull up the newspaper. Uh, Councillor Tom Egan had recently just passed at that point. And then there was going to be an opening uh, in council in Shelburne. And you had an opportunity to speak for 15 minutes. And um, you answered questions, you made your presentation. But what really stuck out to me was this quote right here. So you get the role, but after you finished, there was like a round of applause that took place, which caught you off guard. But then the mayor speaking about you in the newspaper wrote, uh, he just seemed to be the most prepared, the most confident. He had some new ideas for inclusion in our diverse community. He was a step ahead of the rest. And I'm just like, you know, this is crazy. So you thought you thought it was crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Superman. <laughs> this is something. Talk to us about black excellence. Why was this? How are you always? And it seemed like that was something that was reoccurring through the positions that you you ran for and the elections that you campaigned for. There was always this. Um, you were the only black person, quote unquote, uh, in some of those situations. One, whenever you won, you would get the information that, oh, you are the first uh, to be in that position. Um, then after you get it, you're like, holy crap, I am the first. And then that burden gets, you know, gets to you. But then you do a great job and then you move to the next thing and you do the, you repeat the cycle again. Talk to us about black excellence and what role did that play in your overall success? And how did you get to be a step ahead of others? What was the uh -huh. secret sauce well, to that? Uh, Black excellence is, is the drive to succeed, right? You have to have the drive uh, to want to be successful despite um, the circumstances that you may currently face. I, I say that you could start in difficult circumstances. It doesn't mean that you have to finish there, right? And mm -hmm. it's not how and where you start in life. It's how you decide to finish. And so... Uh, when things come your way, it's that constant drive to want to be better, to level up when you recognize the magnitude of that excellence and you uh, obtaining that platform. Because when you get there, you realize the, the impact that you have, not only with your family, but certainly with your community. And I think that allows you to be motivated, along with other things, my family, my mom, as you know, in the book, uh, there were a number of things that kept me motivated along the way. But uh, it's important that I say this because I, I've said this uh, on numerous occasions, numerous interviews, is I don't want anybody to take away that it was just me putting my head down, working mm -hmm. hard. Yes, I surrounded myself eventually with really good friends that helped me along the way. I had a great example at home with my mother. All those things were important. Uh, but for me, I just want to emphasize for me, it was my mom's faith, her prayers, uh, the, 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 the church family that I, the church that I attended, the people there were constantly praying for me. And there was just a faith and a belief that I had in God that despite how low certain things got, he was always showing me that there was a way. And that gave me the courage and the confidence to know that things would be better. Because when people face these kinds of obstacles, whether it's similar to mine or completely different, it could really weigh on you. And you start to think that you know, these things are not possible for me. But it was with that, along with the hard work, coupled together, uh, allowed me to get to where I'm at right now. Mm, I love that. You know, as I 
as I went through the book, I saw some pictures and, and uh, I, I don't know if you know this, I've been studying you for probably six, seven months now. <laughs> um, yeah, you were speaking at some fireside chat. I came in, uh, listened to you um, the whole time. And I've, I, I learned this from a friend of mine who is now, he's now involved in politics back home in Nigeria. He's my age and uh, he's moving up, you know, he's, he's gotten in, he's run for office, he's been able to, to, to push through. And I remember when he used to talk about those years where he would study, you know, Prince Charles or Prince Harry or how they would walk and how they would speak and he would mimic them like word for word because he wanted to reach that level of, hey, they were trained to do this and if I want to be at that pinnacle of my, my political career, I have to be able to do the same thing. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to steal his style. You know, I'm following, I'm watching you and how you speak and how you do these things. But while reading the book, I noticed, first of all, okay, he's always got this nice suit on, bam. <laughs> and then it's like, okay, he doesn't wear a tie, but he always has his pocket square, you know, to, 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 um, to add to the pizzazz of the, of, of, of that. But then, you know, the swearing in, he has to put a tie on, I guess, because it's an official event. But every other event, there's no tie on. So I'm stunning and paying attention to this. I saw your quote on page 144. It says, I was never one to use perceived barriers as an excuse not to succeed. And it was one of those drop the book, walk around uh, for two minutes again, like, boom, wow. When I talk to, you know, uh, many people that were born and raised in Canada, uh, you hear and you see, and also as immigrants, those barriers, you know, um, whether it's systemic racism or implicit bias within the organization or the, 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 the way the organization is set up or, or whatever it might be. But you say, I wasn't one to perceive them as barriers uh, and not to hold you back from succeeding. How, how did you overcome that? Mm. Yeah, uh, the barriers do exist. There's no question about it. Um, you know, but as I say in the book, it's um, obstacles and challenges are inevitable. It's, it's how we respond to those obstacles and challenges that define our future and our legacy. You have to be fighting for something. That's what's going to allow you to uh, get past, whether it's the naysayers, the doubters, the challenges, the obstacles, the setbacks, et cetera. There's gotta be something that's motivating you to go forward. Mm. Uh, and I say, if you don't have that, then you're like the proverbial leaf in the wind. When the gust blows, you see the leaves on the tree blowing all over the place. They're, they're on the street, they're on the grass. Wherever the wind's taking them, that's where they are. Mm. Um, the, the first sign of any resistance, they're gone. Uh, but when you have something that you're founded on, you have a foundation, there's a, there's a, a passion, there's a desire. One of those uh, passions for me and desires and that motivational tool for me was when I saw what my mother went through and the sacrifices that she made, uh, mm -hmm. I wanted to make sure that the things that she had to give up to make sure that our family was okay, that it was not done in vain. And so I, I, I refused to allow the challenges and the barriers prevent me from achieving the goals that I set out to achieve. Mm. Uh, and so that's what I mean by that. Um, let, let us not use these things as excuses uh, not to succeed. And I'll just give another quick example of that. Uh, as we talk about the town of Shelburne, I moved from Milton, a uh, very multicultural community. I was in Jane and Finch, totally multicultural. And then I went to a predominantly white neighborhood. And some would have said, well, Steve, are you kidding? They've never had anybody racialized on their committee since the town was founded. You're coming in as not even somebody who's been living in the community for a number of years, but a six foot three black guy who completely stands out, as you say, with the pocket square. Uh, some would have looked at me and said, you're, you're crazy. There's a clearly, there's a barrier. No one's been elected. You're clearly different. And you look at the council, it's all white men. What are you doing? You're wasting your time. But I still went forward because I had a conviction and a belief that this was possible and that I could do it. Mm. And so I didn't allow the perceived barrier to say, this is a reason why I can't obtain this position. And if I, if I succumb to that, we wouldn't be talking about today about me being appointed as counselor and deputy mayor for the town of Shelburne. 
I like that. Thank you for that powerful illustration. I think that really, really helps with that. It, it, later on in the book, you you were sharing about how you know your friend um, was getting his book. Uh, with, it was like a book signing ceremony, and you were there. Mm. And there was a 60-something-year-old uh, individual who had walked up to your friend and was talking about finding his purpose at the age of 60. And you mentioned that that really resonated and stayed with you for a while. In fact, I think you dedicated that section of the book to finding purpose. Can you talk us through that? How do you find your purpose? And when do you know that this is for me? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And, it, and that took a lot of time. Uh, everybody has a God-given gift. Um, Making, you know, working at a job and making a lot of money does not necessarily mean that you are fulfilling your gift and your purpose. It just means that you're at a good job and you're making a lot of money. Uh, if you're fortunate uh, and that is your passion and you're able to marry the two together, then you're truly living bliss. Um, you really have to take time to see for yourself, what am I really good at? Why am I here? And I, and I tell my friends, sometimes I'd be at home, I, I'd take a, a few days off. And, uh, and I'd be at home really pondering this serious question because time blazes by for all of us, right? And we could get so tied up on the rat race of performing the, the functions of the job, the functions of family, uh, support of family, support of community, that we, we don't find the time or take the time to figure out why exactly are we here and what is my purpose? I was able to figure that out. And that's when I felt that I was able to um, maximize my performance, if I may put it that way. I think before I was operating, the example that I give is, I think I was operating using the analogy of a car. I, it was an eight cylinder car and I was operating on four cylinders. Once mm -hmm. I found my purpose, I was now able to maximize the performance of myself. And I say, when you do that, when you find your gift, not only are you operating optimally, but the people around you are going to be blessed by the fact that you are putting out the way that you are. Mm, I like that. Thank you. Thank you. And um, lastly, you, um, you shared a powerful story um, where I, I, this was in another webinar I was listening to. I would love you to just share this again for us mm -hmm. to end this. You talked about how, you know, the Jane and Fitch mall was a, was a place that, you know, you and your mom, uh, you remember as a child, you would go there and you were followed by security. But then much later on, now you're going there. And was it like a big banner of you or something? And you were yeah, going yeah. to lunch yeah. and your mom was there. Um, yeah. Talk us through that experience and what, you know, the full circle coming back from the beginning to that period now, years later, and just what can young black uh, kids and young immigrant kids who are currently in their Jane and Fitch mall experience with um, security guards following them around, uh, what could they gain from your life story? What I would say is there, there are periods in your time, in your life where you think you may be just another face in the crowd or insignificant in the grand scheme of things. Um, but true success and greatness, if you want it, um, is awaiting you around the corner. Um, as you mentioned, I used to take the metal grocery trolley from Jane and Eddie Stone and walk 20 minutes up to Jane and Finch Mall to go stand in line at the CIBC to wait for my mom to come in from work so she could get to the front of the line. Uh, an obscure, just another face in the crowd at the Jane and Finch Mall. Uh, talking about, you know, with my friends, going to the Independence Mall and seeing, you know, that second look, you know, are these guys up to something or whatever the case may be, uh, uh, made to feel that maybe somehow you are less than uh, mm -hmm. somebody who cannot be trusted. And so whether you're in a Jane Finch community or some other community around Canada or around the world, you may be feeling that as well um, or undergoing that uh, a form of treatment. Mm -hmm. uh, but what I say to you is like in my situation, despite all of that, um, do not let anybody undermine, and certainly not yourself, undermine your worth and your contributions or your potential contributions uh, to this community and to this world. And my story is just a great example of being that person who was just another face in the crowd at the Jane and Finch Mall, uh, looked at at a certain way, you know, lowered expectations as to what this Black man could achieve coming out of this area. Uh, and we've now talked about the achievements. 
Um, going back to the mall after all that experience was rewarding because after I finished the book and it was on social media, the Jane Finch Mall reached out to me uh, and said um, they wanted to honor me on their social media and they wanted to put me on their billboard inside the mall, uh, along with a quote in advertising the book. And so what I did is I took my mom and we went back to the Jane Finch community, not to the mall first. We went back to the building where it all started and we actually gained entry into the building and we stood right in front of our former unit 156. Wow. And we took pictures there and we reminisced about the time, the struggle, the happiness. Uh, and then we made it our way to the mall where we took pictures and she took pictures underneath the billboard with flowers in her hand and the book in the hand. And wow. that was important for a couple of reasons very quickly. One is it was important to remember where you come from, even when you achieve your success mm -hmm. and you get to the top of the mountain, don't forget where you came from. Mm -hmm. There's a lesson to be learned uh, for not only yourself, but there's people to be inspired by you retracing your journey and your steps. And the other most important thing for me was success is never achieved by oneself. Uh, and my mom played a significant role. And so I brought her there to celebrate our achievements. So remember the people who've assisted you along the way when you eventually get to the mountaintop. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Steve. The book is called Driven to Succeed. Th thanks for joining us. Uh, this was, uh, I enjoyed the book, I would say. I, I thought it was so powerful. Uh, I learned so much from it, highlighting and writing things. And um, in fact, my wife and I were debriefing on the book as well, just um, some of my learnings uh, from it. But thanks for writing it. I know there was another webinar where you talked about you weren't sure and you were thinking to yourself, why should I write this? Or why am I the person to write this? But thank you for pushing through despite those thoughts, because uh, it's definitely adding a lot of value to, to many of us. Thank you. All righty. It's been a pleasure, uh, listeners. I hope you learned something from this. Please purchase the book, Driven to Succeed on Amazon. Have a fantastic day. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Why don't you do us a favor and share this podcast with a friend or colleague? The Immigrant View is brought to you by ImmigrantsNetworks.com. Hi, I'm Nick Narani, founder and CEO of Immigrant Networks. Listen, if you're an immigrant or an international student looking to find a job and expand your network in Canada, Immigrant Networks is for you. Immigrant Networks, we say networking to get working. It is a community built by immigrants just like you to help you overcome one of the biggest challenges that immigrants have when they come here, and that is finding and retaining a job. Visit our website today and get matched within days with someone from your profession and learn and grow. Immigrant Networks. Networking to get working. Music provided by bentsound.com.